Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we are beginning an exciting new series on one of the most interesting ongoing controversies within Christian theology. Does God have exhaustive foreknowledge of the future? Does he know everything that is going to happen before it happens? If so, what does that mean for our human free will? What are the various options within Christian theology and philosophy that well-meaning Bible students have taken over the years? We're going to be getting at these kinds of questions here in this extended series called Foreknowledge and Free Will. Now, I've been working hard on getting competent representatives from various backgrounds so that you can hear the major options to choose from. As such, I've got interviews with an open theist, an Arminian, and a Calvinist, resulting in a six-part series on foreknowledge and free will. And if you're not familiar with those terms, open theist, Arminian, and Calvinist, that's okay. We'll explain that as we go. To begin with, Dr. Dale Tuggy will give us a lay of the land, going through seven different ways that Christian philosophers have understood divine foreknowledge and human free will. He makes the case that the notion of exhaustive foreknowledge makes libertarian free will impossible. After all, if we are unable to do other than what God knows we're going to do, then we don't really have a free choice otherwise, right? See what you think. Dr. Dale Tuggy served as professor of philosophy at the State University of New York for some 18 years. He taught courses in analytic theology, philosophy of religion, religious studies, and the history of philosophy. He has his Ph.D. from Brown University and has authored about two dozen peer-reviewed articles and also has a book out called What is the Trinity? available on Amazon. We'll give you more information about Dr. Tuggy at the end of this episode. Here now is episode 303, Foreknowledge and Free Will, Part 1, Open Theism Explained with Dale Tuggy. Dale Tuggy, thanks so much for coming on and uh, spending some time with me today on Restitutio. Thanks for having me, Sean. Big fan of the podcast. Thank you. Uh, let's let's talk about open theism. Uh, maybe you could just begin by telling us a little bit about your background on the subject. Like, for example, when did it first come on your radar? Well, you know, my background was like everybody else. I was just a standard evangelical kid. I assume that God is all-knowing. And if you know everything, then you must know every last truth about what any free agent is ever going to do. I mean, that just seems like it must be true by definition. So I just went along happily with this assumption until I was in grad school. I took a class with a super brilliant philosopher, a Jewish fellow named uh, Victor Kasten. He's not at Brown anymore. He's at University of Michigan now. Probably the smartest person I've ever known. He's a specialist in ancient philosophy, but he also knows a lot about medieval philosophy and philosophy of religion. When I knew him, he was just learning Arabic for fun, even though he already knew five or six languages. Uh, But anyway, he taught a class that I took on medieval philosophy. And in medieval philosophy, there was a long conversation between mostly Christian philosophers, but also some Jewish and Islamic philosophers about the compatibility of divine foreknowledge with human freedom. Okay. And uh, to make a long story short, I tried out all the options for how divine foreknowledge could be compatible with human freedom. 
And they all just seemed wrong to me. And open theism was the only way out. What I discovered in that class was that divine foreknowledge as traditionally understood, where this includes everything you will ever freely do in the future, I realized that that implies that no one ever chooses or acts freely because it takes away all the options. I see. Well, why do you think that if God knows the future, then it takes away human free will? I mean, for example, let's say I got in a time machine and I went 10 minutes in the future and observed that you scratched your nose and then I came back. Did I force you to scratch your nose? I mean, how does it follow that knowledge eliminates free will? That's a great question, Sean. And I'm not going to get into the time travel can of worms, though. I actually think time travel is not logically possible, and it ruins all science fiction for me. But um, yeah, I mean, why should just something being foreknown mean that it's not a free action? The line of thinking that I discovered, and this has been known to many, many people, and this is why Christian philosophers were so exercised about this for pretty much the whole Middle Ages. The reasoning goes like this. Aristotle observed that even God can't make something that has been done to not have been done. So once something has happened, it's too late to make it not have happened. Just too late in principle. Even an omniscient being can't change it. The past is just unchangeable. That's part of what it is for an event to be past. Uh, so a colorful example that they discuss, these medieval philosophers and theologians, is losing your virginity. Right? What's that? Once that's gone, it's gone. Now, God could forgive you. God could uh, make you forget it. He'd make everybody forget it. He could uh, change any physical consequences that happened as a result of this action and undo it in that sense, but he can't make it to not have happened. It's already happened, okay? Yeah. This just seems like an obvious fact about the past. Once an event is in the past, it's, it's thereafter settled. It's unchangeable. It's too late to do anything about it. Okay, so suppose God knows a million years ago a certain fact. He knows that you will freely choose to kick your dog in anger tomorrow. So, Sean, I know you have a temper problem. You're Irish. and uh, Thanks a lot. You, uh, <laughs> I'm Irish, too, so I can insult you. <laughs> you have a temper problem. You know that you shouldn't be kicking the poor dog. That's morally wrong. Uh, but tomorrow, I don't know, your favorite sports team is going to lose or something, something annoying is going to happen at church and you're going to, you're going to feel like kicking the dog and, you know, I know I shouldn't do it, but man, it feels so good. Mm -hmm. So you give in a temptation and you, you sin, you totally kick the dog. Suppose God knows this a million years ago. Okay. Well, then it looks like it follows that you will do it. Not you might do it not you'll probably do it it's already been foreknown it's being foreknown logically implies that you do it and moreover this is a past fact there's a fact that god knows a million years ago that you will freely kick the dog tomorrow that fact logically implies that you will freely kick the dog tomorrow therefore the objective probability of your not kicking the dog tomorrow is zero it's already been foreknown Okay, so at no point in your life were you ever capable of doing anything to get off this track because it was already foreknown. It was too late to change that, right? If I could interrupt here. Mm -hmm. You're saying that past events are unalterable, 
and that foreknowledge essentially puts all future events into the past. Not n- from God's I wouldn't perspective, put it that I guess. way. Yeah, you could say that from God's perspective, it's like they already happened, but they're still future events. So, you know, a million years ago, your kicking the dog would still be a million years hence, a million years forward from there. But it's just the fact that it's already been known implies that it is going to happen. If it is going to happen with a probability of 100%, then even right now, the day before the temptation, there is no way for you to get off that train. It's just going to happen. Okay, and it's not just like this in my silly kicking the dog example. If God has this type of foreknowledge, he foreknows every future action of every agent, then there aren't ever any alternatives that are available to us. It's already been sewn up, so to speak, just by this past fact that God foreknows the entire future in this sense a million years ago. So everything, if this is right, if God has this kind of foreknowledge, it follows that everything that happens is, has always been inevitable since, since that moment of foreknowledge. It was going to happen with a probability of one or 100%. So divine foreknowledge, as traditionally understood, implies fatalism. Um, fatalism isn't, you know, that there's this goddess fate that always, you know, outwits you and makes things happen against your will. It's not that uh, something has to happen, quote, no matter what. Fatalism is just that all events are as unchangeable as past events. I know. So you can't change the contents of God's knowledge a million years ago. Okay, well, you can't change what's going to happen tomorrow. And uh, if there are never any options available to us as we live our lives, then it looks like human freedom is an illusion. The problem with that is if human freedom is an illusion, it looks like human moral responsibility is an illusion. Because our being morally responsible for our choices and actions, that seems to just presuppose that sometimes we have options, right? And that's why we're responsible. So for instance, if you could... uh, if you were a mad scientist and you constructed a creature and uh, anytime it hears the word um, Dallas Cowboys, it, it starts punching everything around. Uh-huh. Like if you made it that way, you can't then turn around and blame it for punching people out when it's triggered that way, right? Right, yeah. And the reason you can't blame it is because this Frankenstein guy never had any means by which to avoid that outcome. Hmm. You have to be careful how you put this because... A typical case of free choice, we think we have alternatives in that moment. Right. Uh, but not all morally responsible choices are like that. So in my kicking the dog example, just before you kick the dog, you were able to kick the dog or to refrain, right? Just walk away, go kick a wall or go for a walk or have a beer or something, but don't kick the dog. We, we think there's many uh, choices available to you in that moment. Um, I don't think that all free choices have to be like that. Say uh, I'm one of those people who, whenever they get drunk, they they get fighty, they get punchy and mean, yeah. and uh, then I get in, I go to a bar and I get into a fight. Yeah, but uh, looks like I'm responsible for the outcome, right? The law is certainly going to hold me responsible for the outcome. Yeah, I think the law just, assumes that there is culpability for moral action. Yeah, I mean. Through a long series of choices, I made myself a person with that habit, 
And then I went in there knowing that I was probably going to be triggered by the circumstances. So I'm, I am blameworthy for the fight that results, but um, I did have ways previously to avoid that. It's just that in the circumstance, I didn't. So that seems like a case of free and responsible action where you didn't have an alternative in the circumstance, assuming that, you know, I'm so addicted to alcohol, I can't help but have 17 drinks. And then, uh, then when somebody looks at me cross-eyed, I'm, I, I can't control my rage. So there are, there are actions that are free and responsible such that you don't at that moment have an alternative available to you, but we're responsible for those because of previous actions that are like that, that where, where there are, where there are, uh, available alternatives. Right. So, um, so you're saying you're responsible for getting yourself into that state where the inevitable would happen. Yeah. Even if in that moment you were basically not completely free. Yes. Yeah, we're not completely free. I mean, are we ever completely free? I don't know. Uh, there's different ways to measure freedom, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, we think that we're responsible for our actions in many cases, we think that we're responsible for our choices in many cases. And interestingly, we think that we're responsible even for what sort of character we have, at least when we're an adult, you know, assuming we haven't been horribly abused. We think that our free choices, you know, over time build up a certain sort of character and that we're responsible for that as well. So this is all just common sense about choosing and about responsibility. But it's not hard to see that if God has foreknown something, it's too late to change that. And if he foreknows that it, it's true, if it's true, then you do kick the dog tomorrow. Given that it's foreknown, there's no possibility of your refraining from kicking the dog or going for a walk or doing anything else. So it's not very hard to see how divine foreknowledge understood traditionally rules out human freedom. And then we're off to the races with, with the different approaches that uh, Christians have had to this topic. And I have several of them laid out if you want to hear those. Yeah, yeah. Let's get a lay of the land. So one answer that I think that occurs to most people who think about it, and it, this is somewhere in the writings of Origen, the famous early Christian scholar from the mid-200s, uh, he says basically— Look, you don't sinfully kick your dog because God has foreknown it. It's the other way around. He's foreknown it because you will freely, wrongly kick your dog. So it's just saying, hey, foreknowledge doesn't cause actions. Rather, what explains the foreknowledge is the fact that you're going to do it. Yeah, I guess this is true. However, it utterly misses the point because... The point was not that God's foreknowledge causes you to perform the action, but it's just that your action, this future action, turns out to be inevitable or unavoidable. It's something too late for you to do anything about. So the point really isn't about causation, it's about implication. And you can't argue with this implication. If it's foreknown, it's true. If it's true a million years ago, then it's a fact a million years ago that you will kick the dog tomorrow. Uh, and if that's 100% certain, which it has to be, then there's 0% possibility of any other outcome. So this doesn't have to do with, with causation. It doesn't matter what is causing what here. It's just about unavoidability or inevitability. 
So that's, I think, just a shallow sort of comeback that doesn't really grapple with the problem. So you're saying causation is not really the issue here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now there are, I mean, there have been a few philosophers who have thought that God's foreknowledge is the cause of everything that ever happens. Maybe some Calvinists would say that, but that's that's a pretty potent kind of fatalism. Uh, there are different reasons why you might think all events are inevitable. So there are different reasons why you might be a fatalist, um, but you don't need to make a point about God's knowledge causing future actions for this to be a difficulty. I see. So, okay, if that's, if that's no good, what are we supposed to do? Another popular option that you see in Christian philosophers like Boethius and Thomas Aquinas is to apply a, a piece of theology that I think really ultimately derives from Platonism and Neoplatonism, and that's the idea that God is timeless, so not everlasting. Right. It's not that he always has existed, exists now, and always will exist. That's what philosophers call everlasting. That's what I think is true. That's not what they're saying. They're saying God is timeless. So it's not even true to say he exists now. It's not true to say that he's always existed. It's not true to say that he always will exist. It's just he timelessly exists. And so change is just, in principle, impossible for God. Any kind of change that seems like an enormous problem right there because the God of the Bible seems to change. But laying that aside, how does how is this supposed to help divine timelessness? So what they say is that God is timeless, utterly outside time, not subject to time in any sense. No predicate, no description that has to do with past, present, or future can literally apply to God. And so they say his knowledge must be timeless also. And so God timelessly knows that you will freely kick the dog tomorrow, and it's not, strictly speaking, foreknowledge. Okay, so the way I presented the problem before, you know, saying, let's suppose a million years ago God knows this, they say, well, actually it wasn't a million years ago. It was in timeless eternity. Aquinas and others talk about God as being able to, quote, see all the past, present, and future like a man on a hill can see an entire road leading into a city. You can see the beginning, middle, and end. Uh, God, from his vantage point, can see all past, present, and future. And it's all, so to speak, present to him in that he is just directly aware of it. I see. Why not say that? It's not foreknowledge. It's eternal, timeless knowledge. And so you shouldn't worry about it. Well, I mean, look, one point is that just seems like the most blatant kind of fatalism there, that image, if the past, present, and future just are lying naked to God's view there, then there is a settled, complete past, present, and future. From God's point of view, it's all wrapped up, and so it looks like there's no possibility of our deviating from that line. So it's just kind of embracing fatalism, I think, with that picture of, of a temporal world. But more to the point, it doesn't help to put God's knowledge into timeless eternity because it also seems like it's too late to change what's timelessly known. What's known timelessly looks like it's going to be as settled as if it were in the past. So it just doesn't help at all. It's a, it's a complete whiff. If you think that God knowing a million years ago 
is unchangeable and therefore it's unchangeable that you're going to freely perform this action tomorrow, well, you're going to think that in timeless eternity, God knows that you're freely going to do this tomorrow. It, it's too late to change that. So it's going to come out inevitable either way. Right. So you're saying there's not really much of a difference as far as the whole question of free will is concerned. Yeah, exactly. And, and by committing to God having this vantage point on a hill, seeing the entire line in front of him, that implies that the entire line is real. And that's a view of time that philosophers now call eternalism, that past, present, and future, past, present, and future are of equal status. And look, uh, if it's already settled what everything in the future is going to be, that's just it. It's, it's, so to speak, too late even now for us to do something about it. There's no way for us to get off the train. Um, so a lot of people have seen that this doesn't help. It, uh, this is a prestigious doctrine that God is timeless. It's really in all medieval philosophy and theology, but it's very widely rejected, actually, by recent theologians of all stripes. I think I've heard of this described as God is in eternity. So, you know, we're kind of locked into this mode, you know, thinking of uh, a record or even a CD-ROM, right? There's a, a, a needle or a laser at a certain point in time, and that's where we are. Meanwhile, God can stand above and see the whole thing from the beginning to the end. And uh, I think there must be some scripture somewhere, because I've heard that expression before, like, oh, God's not like us, he's in eternity, and he has access to all time. Have you heard that way of talking about it? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, the problem is that God can't react to anything now. He, He can't interact with us in any meaningful sense. And, I mean, if he's just like the guy playing the CD... You know, the CD is what it is, and he's he's kind of strangely detached from it, too, in a sense. You know, he's not actively, causally involved in it. It, it, He might have caused it at the beginning, and when he did that, he he settled every question that was ever going to be settled, uh, and now it just is what it is. I'm not not sure this is coherent at all. Look, uh, the way people imagine this is... They they have like a timeline, and then they're thinking like God's floating above it somehow. But you can't get away from time in a certain portion of space. Like you can't go far enough away, and then you're not in time anymore. Like time applies to everything in all of space. And I mean, where else? Is there really somewhere else that you can exist if you exist now? Um, it's, it's not clear that it is. Um, so... Yeah. I mean, normally you think that when you communicate with somebody, you're causing them to uh, think in a certain way. But God is going to be utterly incapable of any sort of change if he's timeless, okay? And so you're causing God to think about a certain thing. That cannot happen. Yeah, because he's... Yeah, he's he's kind of out outside of the whole process. Yeah, there. I think I just found the scripture, Dale. It's uh, Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen. It says, "For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and so on." I, what I just read there was the ESV, but then when I checked the NET, the New English Translation. It said, for this is what the high and exalted one says, the one who rules forever. So in one it said, yeah. you know, inhabits eternity, which I think is 
Yeah, that's uh, same as the King James and um, maybe some other versions. It, it really does give you that <laughs> that image of divine timelessness, like we're inhabiting time, he's inhabiting eternity. But um, the NET argues, and this is a recent Bible from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, it, it argues that that's just not at all the correct translation here. So, I mean, that might be one of these things where somebody reads one verse out of Isaiah mm-hmm. and says, and then builds a whole philosophy on it, and it and it's a verse that could be translated different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And that translation probably reflects this prestigious tradition that God is timeless. But look, on the face of it, uh, the Old Testament God is not timeless, right? He's the ancient of days. Yes. He's all he's always been around. He's causing changes in the world now. He's listening to people now. On the face of it, he's changing his mind a couple of times in response to people. It's never imagined that he's going to somehow be incapacitated or go out of existence. So he'll always be around. Right, that's a God that's in time. Yeah. Uh, now, now they, they always belittle this as God subject to time, God captivated by time, God a prisoner of time. But it's hard to see any bite to these metaphors. Like, why would that be prisoner? I mean, it was he who chose to create freely. Um, how God and time are related is, is an interesting and very, very deep topic some philosophers, some Christian philosophers, think that God created time in creating a temporal universe. Some think that time is more closely related to him than that, so that if God exists, then necessarily, uh, in some sense, time exists. That's maybe a more popular view nowadays. People like Richard Swinburne or uh, Dean Zimmerman uh, hold a view like that. It's a deep topic. Time is a difficult uh, thing in philosophy. There are philosophers who pretty much just philosophize about time. And uh, we could we could talk about uh, different ways of approaching time, but we should probably uh, move on to theories that people go to when they realize that this Aquinas view that God is timeless just doesn't help with this problem. Are we going to talk about middle knowledge? Yes. All right, because it, it yeah. seems like that would be the title of something that's in between the two, right? Middle, <laughs> between the uh, everlasting and the timeless view? Well, the reason it's called middle knowledge is because the theory— and this is a, a brand new theory. It, it doesn't exist in the ancient world or in the early medieval world. It was thought up by a guy who was a Jesuit named Luis de Molina, who died in the year 1600. It's called middle knowledge or the theory of Molinism after him— it's called middle knowledge because the theory is that God has a knowledge that's in between and sort of connects two other kinds of knowledge. So on the one hand, God knows all necessary truths, all truths that couldn't that couldn't be any different than they are, like two plus two is four, right? Yeah. Just in principle, that has to be true. It couldn't be false. And then on the other hand, God freely knows that Sean Finnegan will freely kick his dog tomorrow. Uh, that's not a necessary truth. That's a contingent truth. And, uh, well, gee, how could God know that if, as we stand today, you're still free to kick or not kick the poor dog, mm-hmm. right? If, as of now, both options lie open, how is it that God timelessly or a million years ago knows this? And so his his contribution is to theorize that there's this thing called middle knowledge 
And philosophers now call this set of truths counterfactuals of freedom. Okay, and th- th- this gets weird and abstract, but uh, and, it, and it leads to a certain view about divine providence. So it's truths of this form. If creature A were in circumstance C, then A would freely choose to do some action D. So for every possible creature, not just actual creatures, but every possible creature, is infinities of them, and for every circumstance you might put all of those creatures in, God knows with certainty what each and every creature would do in each and every circumstance that they could possibly be in. This is the middle knowledge. So uh, he knows the necessary truths. Uh, he, he knows what he, he himself is going to do. Uh, he applies these counterfactual truths about free agents. Uh, and basically, once he picks the circumstances and the agents, then he can just calculate instantaneously what they're all ever going to do. Because he eternally, perfectly knows that for any agent, whatever, any possible agent, put them in any circumstance, God knows what they are freely going to choose in that circumstance. That's just, so, on the face of it, sounds like a contradiction. He knows what they're freely going to choose. You know, yes. if he knows it, how is it free, right? Yes. I, I don't know. Yeah, and that the whole thing comes crumbling down when you realize that the whole clever, it, it's a very clever theory, and it, it gives you sort of um, a way that God could construct, uh, a way that God could control the way history evolves just by picking the right agents and by picking the right circumstances. Yeah, it's definitely a, an appealing view because you can almost see God with a universe simulator in the beginning, running through all the different scenarios until he arrives at just the right initial conditions for the construction of the universe so that it will have the optimal outcome of everything. I think this kind of theory really appeals to the engineering-minded person, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes, and uh, clever people like uh, William Lane Craig go all kinds of strange places with this, and, and the Catholic philosopher Thomas Flint so Craig speculates that, uh, you know, the people who hear the gospel are the people who uh, are able to freely uh, accept it, and all these uh, pagans that perish in darkness, well, that's okay, because they were, even if they had heard it, they wouldn't have, they would have freely rejected it. And so that's okay, they're just fodder for the for the mill. Uh, God, God can use them because they're... they're uh, uh, unsavable, which is a bizarre idea. But I, I mean, I think you already popped the balloon, Sean. You said, how can God with certainty foreknow what you're freely going to do in the circumstance? Right. If you really are free, it looks like in the typical case, there are multiple alternatives that are still open to you. The way that works is you're able to think of many things to do, right? So you're tempted to kick the dog, and you're like, oh, I shouldn't kick the dog. And you're motivated to do incompatible things. You have a motive to kick the dog. It would feel good. You're, you're, me- you're feeling mean right now. Uh, but you have a motive not to. You don't want to be a bad person. You don't want to disobey God. You don't want to make the wife frown at you. You don't want to hurt the dog. You have motives to do it. You have motives not to do it. And then it looks like our job is to kind of pick carefully which ones we agree with which ones we let have free reign, and that's that's free choice. 
Okay. So there's a really brilliant philosopher. I, I think he's an agnostic, uh, not a Christian, uh, but his name is John Martin Fisher. And he has written a couple of articles in the last 10 or 12 years about Molinism. And I think he really punctures the whole thing really in a devastating way. The, this theory doesn't show you to any extent how foreknowledge and human freedom are compatible. It just, if you assume they already are compatible, it gives you a mechanism for how God comes to have this knowledge without having to behold it all from a high standpoint in timeless eternity. So it's not that exciting in the end. Well, I mean, and, it, it it really does the same thing, because on the, on the one view of the exhaustive knowledge of the future position, where God just already knows what everyone's going to do, because he's, in a sense, able to access the future, whether timelessly or in time, he's, he's able to perceive the, the future in some way. With the middle knowledge, you just have him running through scenarios in his mind, so to speak, but those scenarios are no less binding than as if he did actually see the future yeah. exhaustively. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're still going to—on on Molinism, you still have to do what he simulated you would do, given those conditions, and he provided those conditions. Yes, yes. The appeal—part of the appeal of it is that Molina— seems to be clear that he is talking about what philosophers call libertarian freedom. This is freedom that requires that, at least at some points, you have alternatives that are available to you to choose, multiple alternatives. Uh, and it takes you away from that seemingly fatalistic picture where God is just beholding everything, and, it, and that means it's already, from a standpoint of eternity, it's all settled. So it saves you from that. You can just have God calculating at the beginning of time. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't help. In the literature, a number of papers have been written by people like William Hasker and others about what they call the grounding problem. The grounding problem for Molinism is if it's libertarian freedom we're talking about, there shouldn't be these kinds of truths. Right. right that if you put Sean Finnegan in this... I'm having a terrible day scenario in all its detail, you know, in front of this dog in this house in this way, then then he will freely kick him. It looks like there shouldn't be a total set of truths like that because, again, when we freely act, sometimes in that scenario, there are multiple outcomes that are available to us. Yeah, uh, That's just definitional if it's libertarian freedom that we're talking about. So basically, all the philosophers who love this theory. And again, it's very clever and you can, you can uh, try to spin out sort of how divine providence is supposed to work in various scenarios with this theory. Um, they're all mushy and I think unclear about what is demanded by libertarian free will. And they seem to be okay with everything we choose being inevitable beforehand. So long as God's not causing it or the, law, uh, the laws of nature in the past don't determine the outcome and things like that. If, if you hold this view and you say you believe in libertarian free will, I don't think that's a coherent position. And probably you're not too clear about what libertarian free will entails. Well, it, it sounds like you have to presuppose determinism in order to somehow conjure up libertarian free will. And to, and to me, that's just too... That's not a paradox, that's just a contradiction. Um, 
I, I, it is it is determinism in the sense, Sean, that in any scenario, there's only one thing that can happen next. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what I'm mm-hmm. saying is that you're you're presupposing that putting quote unquote free moral agent in a situation will always have a predictable outcome. Yes. That is a, that is the determinism I'm, I'm trying to say. Now, this doesn't really differ much from my atheist friend who says. Well, actually, there is no such thing as free will because it's all reducible to neurons and and even the same terminology, initial conditions that someone is in. And you know, this is this is all the rage these days with atheists to say that look, you know, we, we don't have we don't have free will. Of course, then mm-hmm. the atheist will still affirm the criminal justice system, <laughs> which is not usually which is not. Yeah. Uh, not fair because you know if somebody is you not not in control of their own decisions then how are they morally culpable yeah they'll just probably give a non-moral justification for the criminal justice system you know we don't want lots of people to be slain so therefore we lock up people as if they were guilty but we don't really think they're guilty yeah yeah, yeah what but it, you know that that molinism view sounds just like what an atheist would say well, I, I mean, I could see why you say that, because it looks like they're taking things that we think are under our control in the sense that we can take steps to avoid them or we can go ahead and let them happen. Uh, they're taking things that we think are under our control, and they're saying, actually, they're not really under your control because they're the product of things that happened before you even existed, right? So. If all the physical facts from the year before you were born, if all those physical facts and the laws of nature, which of course you can't change, if the laws of nature and the past from the year before you were born entails that you're going to kick the dog tomorrow, that's just it. You can't avoid that. That's not. A, it looks like it's not a free action anymore, right? But however the natural world is put together, whether there are always physical causes for every event that happens... That's another question, but it looks like Molinism is taking away your freedom because of of postulating these counterfactuals of future free actions. I have a scenario that uh, I think of, and it's it's kind of dumb, but I, I'd like to get your take on it. Let's say that I'm at an ice cream shop on a Tuesday in July, and uh, let's say I do that, you know, for ten years. Every, you know, first Tuesday in July, I, I go to the same ice cream shop, and uh, every time they have all the same different options. So, so there's like 20 different flavors of ice cream. In that scenario, I have, just speaking personally, I have certain preferences, right? Mm-hmm. Peanut butter cup is basically at the top, and, you know, like weird stuff like cotton candy or birthday cake ice cream that's that's just I'm just never going to order that. Mm. Um, and then there there's kind of like some other random middle flavors that maybe I feel like that today. Maybe I don't. So there's like a, a clear preference of what I would like to have, clear preference of what I would not like to have. Then there's a few in the in the middle there where it's like, well, maybe today I feel like doing a little cookie dough, mm-hmm. you know, and. In the same scenario, obviously we can't repeat the same exact scenario multiple times to prove that I would choose otherwise, but we can, you know, do it every year, and you know that's not perfect, but it's it's something. And you know, would I, just thinking to myself, would I in some of those years get peanut butter cup and in other years get something else? I think I would definitely 
not be fixed on just like one thing. You know, I guess that's mm-hmm. maybe not the perfect analogy to think with, but well, what what the fatalist will say is that uh, every time you make a choice, that there was something that was just a little bit different in that scenario, right? They can always just kind of adjust yeah. their theory. One time a bird chirps, another time a yeah. car horn honks, and another you saw time an I've ad for peanut butter on your before. way to the yeah. store, and yeah. so that's why you pick uh, the peanut butter cup ice cream that time. I mean, what what you're describing, Sean, is just it's part of common sense about free choice. So you are aware of available options. Although for some of the options you're aware of, you really don't have any motive to pick them. Yeah. Okay. So it looks like the probability going in for those is going to be zero or close to zero. Unless they right. say, Hey, we're out of every single ice cream except birthday cake. Maybe, right. you know, maybe, although maybe, I don't know, maybe you hate that so much. You would just walk out and go find yourself a better ice cream place. Uh, so yeah, you have, there are uh, multiple options. You're aware of them. You have motives to choose more than one of them, but you can't choose more than one of them. And some of your motives are stronger than others. And so it looks like whatever your favorite kind of ice cream is, we think is probably, it's most probable that you're going to choose that. But we think there are other lesser probabilities for your choosing the other ones that you also kind of like. And we can't put any numbers on those probabilities. You know, we can't say it's 71% likely that you'll choose chocolate peanut butter cup and uh, 23% likely that you'll choose death by chocolate. Um, But we do think there are differences in the probabilities. Why do we think we're free? Well, look, when you're standing there at the counter and you're trying to make up your mind and it's taking you a minute, it doesn't feel like anything whatever is pushing you towards a conclusion. Like you're... right. You're looking down both of the forking paths, so to speak, and you just feel like you could choose for either one. Yeah. And then suppose you you order your um, your favorite, and then you take a couple licks, and you say, "Oh, this ice cream's kind of old. I think it's past its expiration date. You know, I wish I I wish I chose the other one." Right. When you express that desire, you're showing the conviction, which is just part of our God-given common sense that you could have chosen the other one. Right. Otherwise, you wouldn't be kicking yourself like that. Right. And, and I can surprise myself. You know what I mean? There are some times where I genuinely don't know what I'm going to do, mm-hmm. and sometimes where I, where I look back on a decision that I made, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I did that, uh, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. It, sometimes we don't know the strength of our motives, but sometimes our motives are very similar in strength, and so it's almost like flipping a coin. Right. Yeah, You know, Pepsi or Coke. I don't know. I like Pepsi and Coke. I guess I'll just do Pepsi today. I mean, it doesn't, there's no reason for us to think that anything determined that I was going to choose Pepsi, if indeed I like Pepsi and Coke equally. And, uh, and I'm in a scenario where nothing's shoving me in that direction. So, well, uh, on these other views though, you have to say that this is an illusion. Yes, you have to say that all of this is an illusion. And, you know, the person like the Calvinist usually likes to insult us and say we think we're godlike and uninfluenced and so on, and that just the buck can stop with us. And I mean, there's nothing godlike about it, right? Because you can influence your motives. I can influence your motives, right? If I'm in the ice cream parlor with you, I could lie to you and say, hey, Sean, I think I saw that guy spit in the chocolate peanut butter cup. 
Right. And then your motive goes, you know, it goes from 85% likely down to 0% likely. Like you're just not able to choose it anymore. Or the salesman behind the counter, hey, hey, you know, this is a really great batch of death by chocolate. He might just raise the probability of you're doing that. So it's not like we're standing free of influences. We're influenced constantly by things inside of us and outside of us, both by circumstances and by people around us and by God and other unseen spiritual forces, I might add. Mm-hmm. There's, it's not that we're uh, free of influence. There's tons of influence. It's just that once you add up all the influences, sometimes there are still multiple courses available to us. That's, that's common sense. Right. And it does raise the question, why or what kind of God would create a universe where everyone is so deceived into thinking that they do actually make their own decisions. Mm. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's a whole other kind of meta question, but it does need to be asked, like, why did why does he build into the system this illusion so strongly that regardless of your faith position, you know, you, you just kind of default to this mm-hmm. unless you have a strong belief to the to the contrary, you know, depending on what, what uh, position you're coming from. Yeah, and I already mentioned regret, you know, just, oh, I wish that hadn't happened. I mean... The fact that we feel that so often shows these convictions about free choice built into us by God. But then a related point is just about guilt. So say that we commit a sin, we typically believe that either right before or maybe further back in the past, if we had done things differently, we could have avoided that sin. And so we feel guilty. And look, if you feel that it was just always inevitable that you were going to kick the dog today. I mean, I guess you shouldn't really waste a lot of time feeling guilty about it. It was just going to happen no matter what you had done for your entire life. Yeah, absolutely. People have different emotional responses to fatalism, okay? One response to fatalism is despair. That, Mm -hmm. oh, I thought I had a little bit of control over how how my life went, and that's just wrong. I I don't have any control. That's a an understandable response to fatalism. But another response that people have, and this is, I think is a large part of the allure of Calvinism, uh, is, hey, everything's all frozen in amber, like a million-year-old bug. There's nothing I can do to mess anything up. It's great. Mm-hmm. Nothing right. depends yep. on me. It's all God. Nothing depends on me at all. There's no way I can screw up anything. Well, and, it, and it's extremely flattering to think that you are one of the ones that God picked to be saved forever, mm-hmm. and that you know He He foreordained your salvation apart from anything that you could do one way or another. But that there's there's a huge downside, and I hope to get into this in our next episode. But there's a huge downside, and that is what I uh, I think it was John Wesley had seen a lot going on in England back in the 1700s, which is you've got all these folks that believe in this strong predetermination, and as a result of that, the people who think that they're damned say, well, heck, if I'm damned, I can't do anything about it, so I just might as well live a life of sin and and hedonism. Mm -hmm. And then others who think that they're saved said, well, I'm saved. I can't do anything about it. I might as well just live a life of hedonism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so either way, you get a negative result, whether you think you're damned or saved, because both categories don't believe that they have anything to do with their salvation at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
that's not strictly speaking the only way to to slice this onion, but it is a way of thinking about it that a lot of people did experience. Okay, so there's Sean, there's one more option here that philosophers have explored and honestly, I think it's a terrible option, but just logically, it's another way to try to get around the kind of argument I described at the start of this episode. And basically, they just say, hey, sometimes you can change the past or change what's in eternity. So the idea is that if you freely choose to kick your dog tomorrow, then you cause God to have always known that you were going to do that, or you cause God to have timelessly known that you were going to freely do that. And so, now look, this seems Looney Tunes. I mean, you can't, you can't change the past, right? That seems self-evident. But what these philosophers do is they say, well, hmm, okay, you can't change most past facts, but maybe you can change some past facts if they have some kind of reference to the future in them, like if it's a belief about the future. And they say hard, they try to distinguish between hard and soft past facts. Hard facts are in principle unchangeable. Soft facts can be changed. And so there's a big literature, you know, what what are soft facts? How could you define these changeable past facts in any way that makes sense? And I've just never seen an example of a changeable past fact that seemed plausible to me. I mean, look, uh, here here's maybe about as plausible example as I've ever heard. If say say some somebody uh, freely chooses to assassinate me tomorrow, okay, and then you say, well, that person okay. made Dale's most recent birthday to have been his last, mm-hmm. so. Maybe it was unsettled whether or not it was going to be my last at the time I celebrated my last birthday, but they changed the past. They made it so that I had my last birthday that that time around less than a year ago, right? And my answer to this is, look, it's just assuming it was a free action we're talking about, my being assassinated, it just wasn't my last birthday back then. It's something that potentially could could turn out to be my final birthday, but at the time the birthday happened, it was not my last birthday. So this just doesn't look like an example of changing the past. And um, we don't think that causation should work from future to past. That's, That's a huge problem. And it shouldn't work from future or present to eternity either. So this view just seems to be denying the obvious, which is that in principle, it's too late to change anything that's already happened or to change what's in timeless eternity. It just seems like it's denying that purely just to get around this problem. And But yeah, this is one that comes up time and again. You know, Why not just say that I caused God to have freely known that when I made my free choice? Like he didn't know it 10 years ago, but I made him to have always known it tomorrow when I make my free choice. That's crazy. If he always knew it, then he would have known it 10 years ago. So this just seems seems to be a bad solution. Uh, logically, it would do the work, but it just doesn't seem like it could be true. So I wouldn't say it's a popular solution. Okay. Uh, and there's one more just to mention briefly. It's what I call mystery mongering. Yep. Just hey, God foreknows every future free action. And yes, that does seem to imply that there are no free actions. So it seems like there are free actions and it seems like there are no free actions. Eh, what are you going to do? Well, 
The problem is we all know <laughs> that we all know that we sometimes choose and act freely. I mean, this isn't really a debatable thing. Yeah. With other people, you can always wonder, oh, you know, were they abused as a child or was there some unseen force that took over them or are they secretly mentally ill? But, you know, in my case, like if I if I commit some everyday sin, like I know that I'm responsible. I also know that in many cases I could have avoided it just beforehand if I had made better choices. You know, we just, so to speak, we sense the available options in front of us. We can feel them so to speak, pulling at us. And we can also sense that we're kind of free in which one we choose to go along with, right? So this is part of common sense. and It's presupposed in the Bible. It doesn't look like it's rational just to say, oh, and by the way, this is all wrong too, or it seems like it is, and just leave it at that. I mean, there are things we don't understand about God, sure, but that doesn't mean that we can accept just any apparent contradiction that comes along. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, uh, so we've covered the different options, right? Yeah, yeah, there's four or five or six of them. Yeah, I mean, the other one is open theism. So saying just when it comes to you're kicking the dog or not, as things stand now, there's no fact about what's going to happen. There are multiple possibilities Right. There are surely even probabilities, you know, you're kicking the dog may be very likely or very unlikely given the circumstances that are going to be and how your character is, what your habits are and so on. And that God is just, he knows at any given time, everything that's true, whether it's about past, present or future. And so he's all knowing. Uh, in fact, God is necessarily all knowing but the contents of God's perfect knowledge are changing as history goes on. So right now he knows what the probability is of you doing this action tomorrow. Uh, the second it becomes inevitable, he knows that. The second it happens, he, he, he saw it coming just before, right? Because he doesn't have any processing limits uh, on his uh, thinking power, you know, unlike a computer processor. Right. So um, it's just that being omniscient turns out to be different than we assumed in a world where there are multiple future possibilities. And as time goes on, some of these possibilities are closed off and other ones become part of the actual history of the world. And so that's, that's called open theism. The way it's put, by usually by its enemies, and uh, the hate for open theism is surprisingly strong. And maybe we can talk about this a little bit next week. But uh, the way it's put is that you're denying that God has foreknowledge or denying that God is omniscient. Now, look, it's, it's not denying that God is omniscient. He knows everything that's true the second it's true. It's that there are, there's no truth of the matter about what you're going to freely do tomorrow because both are still possible. There will be a truth. The, the deposit of truth gets added to as time goes on, according to this. So I think the hate for it is people think that it's kind of wimping out, that it's making God uh, less than perfect, or it's sort of molding God in the image of a person, or making room for human sovereignty, and you shouldn't think there is any human sovereignty, that we don't have any control over what happens. That's crazy. But anyway... The view is that it's a it's a new newfangled 
idiotic compromise and you're sacrificing divine perfection just so that you can have your precious stupid free will. But my, my point about it is, and, and this is in my paper published in Faith and Philosophy called Three Roads to Open Theism. My point is it's primarily a position about the world God made. And there are implications for thinking that the world is this way for how God is providence. It's not primarily a position about God's attributes. It's primarily a position about human freedom and then how the world has to be for humans to be free in that way. And then there are logical implications there for how God is in charge of the world. Yeah. All right, well, that's that's good for today. Thanks so much for uh, giving us uh, an insight into this, and uh, look forward to next time when we can delve a little deeper into open theism in particular. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's been a lot of fun. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to know more about Dr. Tuggy, you can reach him through his website, trinities.org. It's like Trinity, but with I-E-S at the end, trinities.org. You can get his book, What is the Trinity, on Amazon. And I also have a a link in the show notes to some previous episodes that I've done with Dr. Tuggy. Also, we did a six-part debate some time ago between Calvinism versus Arminianism. It kind of goes along with this material, so if you're interested in that, uh, take a look at that. That was between Blake Courtright and Jacob Rohr. And stay tuned for next week, where Tuggy is going to lay out more on the subject of open theism. We'll bring in much more of a biblical case for that subject before going on to, in the subsequent weeks, hear from Dr. Leighton Flowers on the Arminian position, as well as Dr. Sean Cole on the Calvinist side. So stay tuned for all of that. I'm really excited about this series. No matter what your view is on this, this is going to be good for you to interact with, engage with, to sharpen up your thinking on the subject, and maybe even switch your point of view. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.